Hello, Kevin. Awesome. You guys are nerds. Damn right. Oh, Kevin, you're so witty. I would stab someone in the face. Oh, that's gross. I'm cutting this, by the way. Bad Philosophy, episode 115, recorded on February 24th, 2012. Scorns and Flattery. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. One, two, Bad Philosophy, episode 115. I am your host, Stephen Torrance, and we are back for another deep uh, delving into uh, popular, I guess, or, or semi-popular TV show. Uh, it's been a while since we've done one like this. I think the, the last time we specifically talked about a show was um, Community, uh, back yeah. the last time it was put on hiatus, which is back now, now, right? It's not back, but it's coming back. It's coming back. There's a date. It's off hiatus. Officially, they're making new episodes. No, they finished making episodes. They were making episodes the entire time it was on hiatus. Oh, okay. So they were still filming. They've wrapped the season. Ah, excellent. And so they've potentially filmed the last community episode ever. Mm. But there are going to be more. Well, we're going to see more. We're going to see more. Okay. (laughs) Six seasons in a movie. Mm. Um... Where were we? Oh, right. Um, So we're going to talk about slings and arrows. And um, I'll go ahead and just dive right into the description from tvtropes.org, which, um, how would you describe TV Tropes? What what is it? It's like a repository for... It's mind heroin. It's mind heroin. (laughs) Um, Can you be a little bit more specific, Kevin? It's mind heroin for media nerds. Okay. Um, it's I, I can tell you sort of a brief history of TV tropes, such mm-hmm. as it is. There was a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan page. Right. Um, and message board. Buffistas, I believe, was its official name. Mm-hmm. And a group of people on Buffistas started noticing these sort of recurring things that happened, not only in Buffy, but in other things they watched. Right. And so from that, they sort of said, well, let's make a cat... A, a, Let's make a, a repository. <laughs> I was going to say category, but Let's repository for all of the, all these things that we see that sort of pop up over and over again mm-hmm. um, in TV, and in essence, and and that was the the initial creation of TV tropes. It's sort of a place to categorize these things we see a lot, mm-hmm. um, and it can be stuff that's real basic, um, like the the face heel turn is one where a good guy. Which a wrestling term, a good guy is called a face, mm-hmm. um, and in wrestling terms, a heel is a bad guy. Okay, and there are good guys and bad guys, and so a face heel turn would be where someone is a good guy and they become a bad guy. Okay, they turn from a face to a heel. So that's that's a, that's something that that is very broad and exists in all sorts of media. You know, we'll see good guys turn bad. Right, Darth Vader being an example if we consider the original Star Wars trilogy to come after the first the new Star Wars trilogy mm-hmm. as George insists it was intended to be despite any and all evidence to the contrary mm-hmm. anyway so that so I mean that's that's a real basic sort of simple thing and, th- and then they list all of the times that appears in anything right um, any any basically any entertainment any form of media and sometimes real life they have real life categories as well mm-hmm. um, and so they started off sort of Categorizing these and and it's it's in a wiki format so anybody can jump in edit mm-hmm. and then they discover that there are a lot of them and you can very granularly define these tropes. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, yeah, well they do and there's there's a lot of overlap and and there's now sort of I mean it's it's a whole vocabulary within the the website and the best way to learn it 
unfortunately, is probably to jump in and click on all the blue links and just let it wash over you wave after wave while going, I don't understand any of this. And eventually right. it'll click and you'll sort of go, oh. Well, take I, a show that you know, like that you know really well, and then look at the tropes list for it. Mm -hmm. each, each show um, has, this show provides examples of, and then they list off all the examples of the tropes related to that show. Well, tropes and they, being the, these, these patterns, these things that we yeah. see a lot of. Um, and and the specifically how where that trope manifests mm -hmm. itself in the show, so you can kind of relate um, that way and define the term by something you know in that show, and then you kind of yeah. look at maybe other definitions of that term mm -hmm. in other shows and, and things like that. Um, and, and and it can be a massive massive time suck where yeah. you're just opening things and new tabs. I mean, people used to talk about how Wikipedia, you know, it's like, well, I can click on this link and I can go find out about mm. something about it. And I think that this. Website has almost taken that and distilled it to a certain level where it's yeah. even deeper. Well, and it's the the thing is, it, it's um, it's just so easy to kind of get lost in this this genome of, of television and of mm -hmm. narrative structure. Um, oh, certainly, because it really it's it's the same way that Pandora kind of um, identifies genome the genome of, of music. Um, it seems TV tropes has kind of identified the genome of um, of television. But well, it, I mean, anyways, it also covers everything else, <laughs> right? Everything else. So, anyways, let's um, let's dive into this here. So, we're specifically going to talk about slings and arrows, and kind of maybe maybe discuss a few of the tropes from the show. Um, slings and arrows is a Canadian dark comedy about the New Burbage Festival, a thinly veiled fictional counterpart, uh, which is itself a trope, <laughs> yeah. uh, of the Stratford Festival of Canada. It focuses on Jeffrey Tennant's return to the festival as artistic director upon the death of his estranged mentor, Oliver Wells, who immediately returns as a ghost visible only to Jeffrey. Uh, each season is a story arc focusing on Jeffrey's production of a great Shakespearean tragedy. The first season does Hamlet, second Macbeth with a subplot about Romeo and Juliet, and the third King Lear. Um, I just recently finished uh, marathoning the... The whole show in about the last week and a half. Yeah, all eighteen episodes. Mm -hmm. um, actually, pretty much since. Well, no, no, no. Since since like two episodes ago. Yeah. Uh, when you introduced it to me, and um, oh my god, uh, does it only get better over the over the um, three seasons? And I really want to go back and watch it again because the the way that they layer and develop the characters is just astounding, mm -hmm. um, and so 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 well constructed in so many ways. Um, I want to. I mean, one of the things that I mentioned to you, Kevin, and one of one of my apprehensions going into it was I don't know a lot about Shakespeare. Um, I've certainly mm -hmm. read many of the plays, uh, even performed a little bit of of one of them. Um, what did you perform? Um, Much Ado, a few scenes, a couple of scenes from Much Ado. What did you play? I don't remember. <laughs> it's been. It was a long time ago. Um, it was in actually Dr. Ashby Martin's. Um, European fine arts class. Hmm. Um, I mean, I say, were you were you a, a primary character? Was everybody doing the same scenes, or was it a situation? I mean, because um, I can probably guess what character you were if it was an important <laughs> scene. I I honestly couldn't tell you. I mean, because um, the the primary romantic couple is uh, Beatrice and Benedict, and there's it's sort of their story. Yeah. Um, and I they, feel like they she, had a us, lot of, she had us do gender reversal a uh, few that's times. That's entirely so what sounds like Dr. I, Dr. It, Ashby Martin. Yeah, um, honestly, yeah. Um, but as I was saying, because those are the those are the primary parts for Beatrice and Benedict. Although everyone right. else has fairly significant parts because it's Shakespeare, and there aren't many small parts in Shakespeare. Um, Only small actors. 
<laughs> no, no small actors in Shakespeare. They do, they do a play on that at some point in the uh, in the series, don't they? I think I'm sure three. they make fun of every known theater thing you can make fun of, right? In, in, in eighteen so, episodes, and and so that kind of gets me back to the point, though. You know, I had a fear going in that it would be way too inside baseball, mm-hmm. both with Shakespeare and with just theater the world in of theater, yeah. Um, but actually, I found myself, you know, recognizing some things that I already knew. The few that I did, mm-hmm. but also um, really appreciating it just for its its accessibility on a narrative level too, and on a character level. Mm-hmm. It's very char- heavily character driven, heavily yes. plot driven, very very layered. Um, it's not really a sitcom because it, it tells no, it's it tells a story. Again, I mean, this is this is why I I hold it up alongside. The Wire <laughs> and Arrested Development. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of this. I mean, Arrested Development is, has a narrative structure to mm-hmm. it. Although um, it's it's much more. I, I mean, Arrested Development has a lot of ridiculous things happen, but yes. no supernatural things. Um, yeah, Slings the, and Arrows. Slings and Arrows has one great exception. Um, I don't know if you're right. you're familiar with. Um, and I gotta look up his name because there's, there's a really neat book. Mm-hmm. There's actually two books. I only read one of them. But um, uh, the physics of superheroes or the science of superheroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, James Kikalios, okay. uh, the physics of superheroes, and he he sort of sets up that okay, what if you know super if how real could superheroes be? How how well do they follow physics and how okay. can learn physics with them? And he always he says each superhero gets one miracle exception. <laughs> um, so the, right. the like the Flash is okay. He's super fast. That's his miracle exception. Mm-hmm. And then how does everything else follow from that? And right. How do we deal with that? Um, I think we've talked about this before in the context of the show heroes, because it's entirely possible the main character is kind of breaks this rule. Right? He has well his his ability is the ability to um, like mirror other abilities. Yes, although right. I don't know so if I call Peter the main character, but that's another exception. He's okay. He's one of the main characters, yeah. but he's one of the superheroes certainly, and his superpower is mm. to mirror other superpowers. Um, sort of similar to Siler, whose superpower is the same thing, but done but through differently more devious means. Yeah, or whatever. Some yeah. somehow Let's in an evil way. Let's get into the weird part, the problems with heroes in the yeah. day. Um, but the one exception that this show has is Jeffrey Tennant. Um, and we really, okay, we should say at the outset here, spoiler spoilers. alert, yeah, spoilers, although we kind of talked about that last week, how the, the spoiler wars are kind of over and we really don't need to even put a spoiler warning in it necessarily. Well, the thing is, and I'm, I'm of the opinion that, I mean, there, there are certainly shows that you can spoil, uh-huh. and there are certainly movies and stuff you can spoil, but I also think that you... That, there is the possibility of knowing stuff ahead of time and having that enhance your ability. Like you said, your yeah. immediate desire was to rewatch this series, mm-hmm. and so knowing things ahead of time can Didn't actually benefit. It. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and I've I've seen it, I've seen the whole thing twice now. Okay, um, so not as much as I've seen Arrested Development, but still only seen that once too. I'm yeah, it's okay. I'm You've got lots of stuff to watch. I do. <laughs> oh God, we'll talk about that at the You've end. You've seen of the Back show. to the Future, right? <laughs> yes, I've seen Back okay. to the Future. I've seen all the Back to the Futures. Some yeah. of them multiple times. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not that bad. That's Although okay. I, I haven't seen E.T. That was one thing that came up in pub trivia yesterday. I don't was love E.T. The, like E.T. screaming, I guess. There's a scene where that happens. And it's a really yeah, strange sure. scream. And I didn't recognize it because yeah. I hadn't seen E.T. But it's, everybody else was like, oh, yeah, E.T., definitely. Okay. I, don't, I don't love E.T. Um, it's, it's just so much a part of our culture, though. That's like, fair. I mean, if, if you're looking at, uh, you know... Uh, 
anthropological viewpoint, perhaps. <laughs> um, sort of, you know, the, the things that have permeated our cultural membranes. Well, like, I've never seen Top Gun either. And that, that I think... That's really? a movie that not a lot of people enjoy, but it's like it's something that everybody to has Gun. to have seen. Do they riff Top Gun? They need to if they haven't. They but probably have. They don't riff old movies anymore. Like they sort of no, it's all it's all new stuff, and and that's okay. But yeah, I feel like there there are holes in the in the riff tracks canon right. that could be filled over time. But, but anyways, so get, getting back to Slings and Arrows, though the the one exception that's made in it is. Um, is, is Oliver Wells, who mm-hmm. dies in the first episode. At the very end of the first episode, he gets hit by a pig truck <laughs> and dies. <laughs> and and that's and I, you know, I told you that like you have to watch past the first episode. Yeah, because if you just I watch didn't the find first it hard episode, to, to watch past it. I thought. Well, you... I mean, it's it's if you're going in expecting the comedy that the show actually is, that episode is incredibly dark. It is is yeah. incredibly depressing it and ends, ends with, with the guy, the more or less the main character of the show up until this point. Dying. Yeah. <laughs> and you go, okay. I don't know that I want to watch any more of this. <laughs> I feel depressed. <laughs> but I didn't, though. I was like, that's hilarious. Let's see what happens next. Because I knew like they would bring Jeffrey in, mm-hmm. in Oliver's place. And yes. that's what happens. Yes, that um, is what happens. But so Jeffrey ends up seeing Oliver as, uh, what did they call it on here? Uh, spirit... Spirit, spirit guide, guide or something, or spirit advisor. Yes, they call him spirit, spirit advisor. advisor. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so he sort of haunts Jeffrey, and they really play this up in season two uh, with Macbeth and the whole ghost thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in season three, the the arc sort of concludes with it, it's almost like what Oliver has to do with Jeffrey is his rite of passage into the afterlife. Is it's he's in limbo. Until he finds some sort of reconciliation with Jeffrey, or Jeffrey reconciles with him, or something. Something. Um, because really, like that's and that tied back in so well to the first episode, <laughs> the fact that they had they had not reconciled. Mm-hmm. It was a choice on Jeffrey's part to hang up on him, you know, and 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 not talk with with Oliver, and as a result, Oliver died, and so there was this this unresolved uh, conflict, you know. Yeah, and uh, and it takes the whole series to resolve it. I thought that was just brilliant, and um, you know, you, you mentioned like the whole thing really could be in Jeffrey's head. Um, although we see some indications in season three that it's not. Yeah, well, because... up until that point, we have no idea if it's real or not. Right, because Charles sees him. In, yeah, in, I mean, Jeffrey's well. yeah. is considering going into therapy and right. dealing with when then because it's, the character history of Jeffrey is that he is crazy. I mean, uh-huh. he has literally gone crazy before and so the idea that someone is speaking to him is not outside the realm of possibility for right. his brain um, yeah I mean it's it's in the backstory that during a performance of Hamlet he just on stage just stops just freezes and then jumps into the grave yes <laughs> Ophelia's grave also quite ironic um, there's a lot of irony in the show I don't know if that's the word you want to use really I don't think him jumping into the grave is ironic well, he wanted to die, so he jumped in the grave. That's not irony. What would that be then? I don't know. But <laughs> what if not it's, irony? Well, no, irony is uh, getting overused nowadays. I blame uh, Alanis Morissette. Appropriate? Personally. I mean, fitting. Fitting? Okay. I mean, they, they play with irony a lot in the, in the series and with, with, I guess, appropriateness or fittingness. Because, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, here's where I really want to ask you, Kevin, like, how. To what extent does the series integrate themes from the performances that they're putting on 
in the actual narrative of the show. Because it's, it's obvious yeah. sometimes, especially in season three. <laughs> well, no, yeah. see, the thing is, I mean, the more the you know, Macbeth, the yes. more you know Hamlet, the more it's going to be, the more you're going to pick up on the shows. little things. Yeah, not just mm-hmm. Hamlet, but right. Macbeth or The more King you know Lear. Shakespeare, yeah. Um, yeah, or Shakespeare in general. I mean, there's a lot of mm-hmm. other stuff going on as well, Shakespearean-wise. Um, I absolutely laugh uproariously at when um, at the end of season one, Jeffrey writes, makes up the next year's season in about two minutes. Oh, yeah. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant because, well, no, it's not brilliant. It's exactly what would be expected from... From Jeffrey. No, from that sort of Shakespeare festival. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Um, I don't remember what the list is offhand. Yeah. Um, I know Anthony and Cleopatra was in it. Uh Uh-huh. I know there was a Greek tragedy in it, but, like, I mean, he was just, he was hitting... All of the big theater festival points uh-huh. that, again, you're not going to catch if you don't know that that environment of those plays. No, I recognize like a couple. Of those um, good. You know, and and so it was. That was just funny to people who are more studied in the world of theater, but doesn't mm-hmm. rob that moment at all within the context of the show, right? Because the idea is that he's just writing it off in two minutes because he doesn't want to deal with it. Um, and so he's picking something that will be acceptable to the board and get them off his back. Yeah. Which he does, and that's what it did. And so that works in both cases. And, of course, they end up changing it, which is exactly what he expects. <laughs> well, they only changed one of them. No, oh, yeah. They, they changed Antony and Cleopatra for Macbeth. Macbeth, yeah. Um, which then become the, the central play of season two. Mm-hmm. Um, but, no, I mean, there's a lot of... They take the themes the, as, as like prompts, right? As well, start, I mean, starting it's even points. you can see some interesting characterizations, and and the characters or the actors playing the characters on stage often share a lot of similarities to the people they're portraying. Right. Um, in the third season, Charles as Lear was the hit, hit you over the head with a hammer obvious one but, but then, you see it with the other with the yeah, daughters but, and mm-hmm. and even with with um with Jeffrey at the end mm-hmm. yeah no sir i mean it's it's certainly in there and you know hamlet being hamlet and Jeffrey having played hamlet and then going crazy mm-hmm. totally yeah. fits with that because hamlet may sure. or may not have gone crazy mm-hmm. depending on your interpretation um, the ambiguity, I think, of Hamlet shows up both well and with Jeffrey within the first season, and with the actor playing Hamlet. He's sort mm-hmm. of in this this place where he doesn't feel like he fits, much as Hamlet doesn't feel like he fits in his own home castle anymore, the, the world of Elsinore, mm-hmm. um, after the the upturn because he's a, he's a Hollywood actor and he's come to do this Shakespeare right. festival. So I mean, all these sorts of things. I mean, there's actually they kind of sum it up on the TV tropes page yeah. fairly well. Um, Let's just pick out some of these tropes randomly. Like, yeah, the uh, central theme. You know, so I mean, each season has a central theme that relates to the backstage plot being performed. Mm-hmm. Season one, Hamlet. You know, madness and betrayal are two big things. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey felt that he was betrayed by his father. Um, and, and, and actually, Hamlet wasn't betrayed by his father; he was betrayed by his uncle. But you know, yada yada yada. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's sort of these shifting based on things. Macbeth is totally about power and ambition, and is is the guy playing Macbeth is trying to be the director and be in control of this play and Jeffrey's fighting him for that control. Is this how they, they hide spoilers? Yeah. Where you have to highlight the yeah. text? Oh, that's Yeah, I that's love their, their solution to spoilers. Um, yeah. 
And you can create an account and turn spoilers off, so you just always see everything. Cool. Um, if you so desire. Hmm. Yeah, but the highlighting thing makes it convenient. Spoiler yeah. text. Um, so, yeah, again, Macbeth, the season about Macbeth was very much about Macbeth thematically as well as being um, about the production of the play Macbeth. Mm-hmm. And then King Lear was, you know, rivalry and, of course, uh, death. Yes. Being a huge part of that. And, and that's what King Lear is about, is our legacy and, and how do we pass on our legacy and how do we prepare for death. And that's what... It was it was season three is profoundly about. moving for me. I mean, That's I, cool. I tweeted this and I put it on on Get Glue and Facebook too. But I mean, I I toward the middle and end of season three, especially the last couple of episodes, mm-hmm. I started to feel a lot of the same emotions and the same grip that I felt watching Synecdoche. You know, and mm-hmm. just just how incredibly well it it uh, kind of laid out those. You know the themes of life and and death especially mm-hmm. and what it means to have a life and you know there's there's one line that just it just comes out of nowhere you don't you don't even see it coming but it's the two the two guys the I guess they play kind of the role of the jesters right the two old the old gay guys the old gay couple I love them they're amazing um, the ones that sing at the the beginning of every yes. um, every episode and they sing the themes. Mm-hmm. Um, he comes. He comes through with you know. Oh, I forget exactly how the line goes, but it's it's something, something like, um, you know, you can't you can't have all successes in life. You've got to have some you know colossal cockups along the way. Yeah. Because uh, then you get <laughs> stories, mm-hmm. and then you've got a life. Yeah. And and just laying it out that simply, just I had to pause it right then, and I was just like, <laughs> holy crap! Like that is. I mean, so deeply simple but profound. And, and, I mean, the show is just hits you with those out of nowhere. Yeah. You know, these weird little... Th- I mean, the let's talk about a few of the characters. You know, the, the character of uh, Richard um, is yeah. Richard the, the soulless yeah. executive. Corporate executive. Although, <laughs> we should point out, and I, I mentioned this to Stephen beforehand, that um, Richard and... Anne? Anna. Anna. Yeah. Um, are two of the creators and writers of the show. Right. Um, so if you ever wonder about their prevalence in the show, <laughs> that, that's why. And I, I, I think both of them are fantastic at their at their respective roles and in writing the show, as good as it is. Yes. Um, the other one was Bob Martin, who, I, as I mentioned, has a small cameo role in season one, and that's about it. And uh, I still I forget who exactly that is. I mean, maybe I can find the... Let's just get a picture of him. Yeah, oh, I can show you Bob Martin. You wouldn't recognize his face, I don't think. Um, Even from having seen season one? Probably not. Uh, there's lots of Bob Martins, of course. Um, yeah. Oh, no, that's yeah, him. That's that, him. yeah. The, the, um, the guy from the, the corporate yeah. um, you know, training, bonding, whatever mm-hmm. it was. Yeah, who, yeah, that's, that's who Jeffrey, whom Jeffrey gives a bit part in Hamlet. Yes, um, because he's a good actor. Um, he's the third creator and writer of the series. Yeah, and, and you can tell that these these folks just get it on a, on a deep level. <laughs> um, theater and structure and of the narrative and, and everything. I, I mean, I, I feel sometimes trying to talk about this as Richard's character does. You know when he has the the problems in in uh, in season three with uh, 
with the, the structure of the uh, musical, you know, and yeah. he's trying to <laughs> he's trying to convey these ideas that he has about you know why it's wrong, uh-huh. um, but doesn't know any of the proper terminology. Um, I definitely and I, what's weird is I identify a lot with with the Richard character, and I think anyone um, who's had who's sort of grown up in that you know mm-hmm. very analytical, um, very as as. Um, Whoever from Frog Hammer, the marketing studio, that's an amazing little subplot, um, tells him, you know, very uh, left-brained thinking, Mm -hmm. um, very narrow conservative, etc. As anyone who's come from that knows, you know, you you can sometimes... Lament the the your own condition in that case, yeah. and want to be something completely different. And season three is really about Richard almost breaking out of that, mm-hmm. but going about it the wrong way. You know, he falls in. <laughs> he he really wants to to do the musical thing. He wants to be part of that, mm-hmm. but well, I mean, he, you can see that as early as season two. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, he discovers season that one, yeah. through his interaction with Froghammer, yeah. kind of breaking out of the traditional marketing approaches. Mm-hmm. But it's still, he he can't, he doesn't form any original ideas. He's just quoting verbatim what other people have told him is the yeah. right way to go about yeah. it and doesn't know the why behind it. And he almost, almost becomes, and it says here, he almost becomes a decent human being, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but in the, in the uh, final episode, falls back into Soul as corporate executive, and Anna just really lays that out for him mm-hmm. uh, in the scene where he's firing her, but really she has to do the work and fire yes, herself yes. because she's too spineless to do it himself. <laughs> um, but you really feel bad for the character. I mean, he's, he's definitely one of the... And not really a tragic hero of it, but certainly a tragic character. Yeah, um, I mean, well, the whole thing is is interesting, and, and the show is a tragedy. It's very its well. The show see, is, the thing is, it's very Shakespearean in that regards, and yeah. that Shakespeare was known for breaking those genre conventions. Hmm. Um, you know, we, we sort of talk about, and if you go look at Aristotle, Aristotle talks about there's comedies and there's tragedies, and there the twain shall meet. Mm-hmm. I'm quoting Shakespeare to talk about Aristotle. That's fun. Right. Um, and Shakespeare had tragedies that were funny, and he had comedies with really sad or, or powerful moments in them, hmm. um, and, and that worked to their advantage. Uh, you know, the, the graveyard scene... In Hamlet, which is a very dour moment, has two clowns in it digging the grave. <laughs> I mean, and and they're making jokes as, as about digging graves and bodies and corpses, mm-hmm. and and it's meant to be funny. It's not, and it's this levity within the darkness sort of thing. And I think that's something that Slings and Arrows tackles very well. Yeah, and sort of this this levity in the darkness. Um, you know, in the fact that oftentimes these characters' worlds are falling apart around them. And it's some of the funniest TV I've ever seen. Yeah. I, although I didn't find myself laughing out loud too often during the show. Well, you don't know the theater tropes as well as I do. I guess so, I mean, there, yeah. there are yeah. lots of theater jokes that... I mean, so this is where a difference in knowledge affects it. Mm-hmm. You certainly enjoyed the structure and the, and the, and the quality well, and of the I've, show. Well, i performed, you know, granted, mm. in, in very limited circumstances. Yeah. But I've performed but there, I, I can't. Before. I can't think of one offhand because it's been eight months since I've seen any other show. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there are certainly moments where... you know. Amy and I would sit on the couch and just bust out laughing because mm-hmm. it was absolutely like... Well, again, the, they, they knew the world they were writing in yeah. so well. Well, the, uh, the stage manager, for instance, is a As an example, character. oh, yeah. Uh, she, and her she, moment in the first season is, is perfect. Which one is that? <laughs> At the party, 
Oh, where she's drunk yes. and yelling about actors. I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah. and, and that's not unlike what every stage manager thinks at some point in their life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and when, when, uh, when she mistakes Anna, like, asking her about uh, pot in the third season for hitting on her. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of, I mean, moments like that. That, again, the more you know about it, the better it is. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's amazing to me... Um, that it's, it can be a successful and that you don't have to know anything about theater to get into it and enjoy it as a piece of television. Sure. Um, well, and to, see, and to see the themes. I mean, mm-hmm. I, think, I think season three is my favorite. And it, I was talking well, about... Well, season three is the culmination. Right. Well, and because mm-hmm. it, it really gets at one of the primary uh, overarching stories, which is throughout all three seasons, there's this um, tension... And, and feeling that you know they're on a sinking ship, right? That theater itself is dying, mm-hmm. and um, in the third season especially, you see it being supplanted by the musical. Yeah, in a, the, in a, Shakespeare in a is being physical, beaten down by the theater, right, right? In a physical, but also in a metaphorical way. Yes, um, and and yet throughout, there's there's still you know the, this dignity uh, in, inside of everything that that's that uh, that goes on and. And you see that the theater really isn't dying. That the theater is transforming in a in a, in a tangible way. And, and I, I mean, you can probably speak to this more. But like, I think the theater attendance a, is down. I mean, is yeah, this, attendance this is, a, is down. Fact. Attendance <laughs> is down. The you know the traditional theater just isn't getting the the recognition that it used mm-hmm. to. Um, musicals are just are taking over the Tonys and and um, and Broadway in general. Yeah, um, I mean that's God. That's what makes money, <laughs> right? I mean, almost every every Broadway yeah. play that I can think of that's gotten any sort of cultural recognition in the last ten fifteen years has been a musical. Mm-hmm. Rent, um, Lion Rents, King. Rents almost twenty five years old, I think. Is it okay? I so don't, more, uh, it's Rent is a lot older. Did than I say Lion King is. Cats? Lion King, well, the Lion King was a play as well, right? Yeah, no, the Lion King I mean, was a play the, as well. Yeah, but a musical yeah. of the movie. Um, God, Avenue Q, you know. I mean, all of these, they're all musicals. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it, but the Well, music- that's what people think of when they think of theater nowadays. I mean, it's right. become that sort of thing. Season 3 is very much about that. And yeah, the, the 93 physical- is when it came, um, originally started. It hit Broadway in 96. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's, that's not as old as I thought it was, but that's still... Significantly older than, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 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 one of the older. And there's that tension between probably. the between the two camps, the theater camp and the theater characters, um, and the um, in the, the in the show. Camp yes, and, yes. And the, there certainly the is that, that tension. I don't know if that happens as much. I don't in, think it's quite the same. I think that was a neat illustration of sort of this ideological difference, right? Of pretty of, heavy-handed though. No, it was it was well handled. I think I don't know mm-hmm. if I'd say heavy-handed. It was. Maybe an exaggeration. Yeah. Um, but handled as well as everything else was in the show, so mm-hmm. that's saying a lot. Well, so, and, and there, are, there are other characters that sort of move along that plot and that, that interweave with it. One of the big ones, let, let's talk about Darren Nichols, because we've been talking a lot about <laughs> postmodernism and modernism lately. Darren Nichols is like this, this personification. Darren Nichols went to Germany and read a book. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> He's this personification of postmodernism. This, no, just oozing. He's with the personification of what modern- people who think postmodernism is <laughs> are like, and and I think he's completely honest within that. I think he's he thinks so that's he's, a, what he's, he's a straw man for for postmodernism. Um, 
in a way. Yes, and again, I don't. I I wouldn't classify him as a postmodern <laughs> performer. Well, he's not a performer. He's, I, I, well, yeah, I'm as a director, as a director, yeah. perform, a postmodern director. Mm-hmm. He might. Um, yeah. Well, and and if you actually go and again, this is knowing sort of the stuff he talks about. Mm-hmm. He's talking about stuff that is not in the postmodern vein. Okay. Really what is it for? Um, it's modernism in a lot of ways. It's modernism. And really? Yeah, yeah. The German modernist movement and stuff like. I mean, his his Romeo and Juliet. His staging for that is, is like is them two standing next to each other in, in these, cages. In, in cages. <laughs> yes. As as um, elaborate, grotesque chess pieces with a giant chessboard. Yeah, and behind and them. if anything, that's along the lines of <laughs> of a Beckett piece. Is okay. what that's what that's. That that sparse structural physical mm-hmm. machine like feel, that's modernism. Okay. Um, and and but then again, his musical is very postmodern in a lot of ways. I, I mean, his musical is what it is. Um, his musical well, he is wants... an attempt to create a Broadway musical. Right. <laughs> Although what what it ends up being is is less of what he wanted it to be because yes. of the Richard uh, plot line, of course. Making it good, right? Um, but he he goes through all of these uh, exercises with the characters mm-hmm. in the Romeo and Juliet season. Yes, and a lot of them seem to be very postmodern. Uh, just for my for my yeah, and and I understand that again, and, I, and that's a that's a perceptional thing because, right. and I can't remember all the exercises he does, but there, I mean, you know, it's it's the. Well, I'm thinking particularly of, of just having them gender reverse, right? And he talks a lot about you know gender being a construction and, and the yes, um, and and but okay, here, here's an important thing to say is that modernism and postmodern has, have a lot of similar things because mm-hmm. structuralism, which is a very modern movement, ah. very much talks about the construction of things mm-hmm. and saying that everything is a construction, gender is a construction, and talking about those sorts of things. Okay, it's how we deal with those two movements. And our reactions to that structure it does affect it, and, and so I mean, yeah, there. I, and that one in particular, though, actually, more I'm thinking about it is, yeah, he is talking about it from a postmodern perspective. Right, so right. I'll give you that one. Um, well, it, well, and it's the writers more so. Like, yes, do, do the writers intentionally miss in portraying him that way, or do they? Um, or do you think that's just a, a shortcoming? One of the, it's the, hard to say because there really are people like Darren Nichols in the world. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. exist. Um, I saw. An opera in Prague that was. I'm not going to know who it was. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wish I could. Yeah, here's, the, here's the. I it was it was a national it was an international premiere of his production of this opera. Yeah. Um, and it was. Amazing. Mm-hmm. It was also something Darren Nichols could have directed. Okay. <clears throat> um, and how so? I mean, just very, very wild, very different. Very... No, it looked like his Romeo and Juliet almost. Okay. Um, in that it was a black and white set, mm. almost incredibly minimal. Um, and again, I, I wish I could find a picture of it because... I mean, well, they might not have many pictures from it. Well, no, they, they, they would, because it was a huge deal that this director was there uh-huh. directing it. And I've seen pictures of it. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what their opera... 
Well, while you're looking for yeah, while we're looking, I kind of wanted to to ruminate a bit on on one of my thoughts that I thought would just a brilliant uh, construction and, and possible interpretation, I guess, of the Romeo and Juliet thing. But am I right in that the interplay between uh, the Juliet uh, actress and the Romeo actress is th- their their subplot? You know, outside of the actual production, is she's coming from um, a very hetero background. And he's uh, homosexual, playing the role of Romeo, and it's almost the Montague Capulet thing is coming from the hetero and the homosexual worlds, and the fact that that they have a relationship is almost that you know impossible relationship, right? You know, um, a heterosexual relationship with a, a homosexual person, right? And and he's he's like, yeah, no, I mean that's or she's that's like his first woman, right? Intentional Explicitly. in that way. Here's here's the one I'm talking about, ah, Patrick Cabanova. Okay. Um, I mean, so I'm, I'm, I can show you these pictures. This is what the opera wow. looks like. Yeah, very lots of lines, uh, uh, high contrast. Yeah, very, um, very, yeah, again, very structured yeah. and very good um, mm. as far as what is. But and very minimal. But yeah. Robert Wilson, that's the director I was trying to think of, who is famous for directing, mm-hmm. um, spent something like six months rehearsing this mm-hmm. and and using it on the national stage, not in a rehearsal space, on this actual stage. Um, they actually had to cut the number of shows they were showing because he had so much rehearsal time hours oh, day. And and he's the kind of director who will reportedly, you know, there's there's a scene where a maid comes out and she's wiping a dish as she's singing and she and it's very methodical and she wipes and she lets go and she wipes and then she puts uh-huh. her hand down. And it's I could expect they'd spend eight hours a day on that. <laughs> eight hours a day on her wiping. <laughs> on how she plate. wipes the dish, yeah. Um, and you can see that, and you can see the the preciseness of that, mm-hmm. and that he is coming into it with such a specific vision mm-hmm. um, that kind of looks goofy, right? But he's doing something. But very he has a very specific. And, and, and Darren Nichols, the character, has that same sort of very specific vision mm-hmm. for what he wants his plays to be. Although, to be fair, Robert Wilson probably knows what he's doing more than Darren Nichols does. <laughs> um, <laughs> because Darren Nichols is kind of incompetent a lot of the time. And, yeah. and, and, and Darren Nichols doesn't have respect for his works. Right. The, the scripts he's working with. Whereas I think Katya Almost Kabanova, like as a point of pride. Yes, yes. He, he explicitly states multiple times, yeah. I hate the theater. Well, know, and, and he's sort of, and he's, and with his Romeo and Juliet, he's trying to deconstruct Romeo and Juliet. Yes. But one of the things that he doesn't understand uh, that, that works with deconstruction is to deconstruct something well, you have to almost love it. Mm. You have to actually know it so well that it is, I mean, your best friend, your favorite play in the world. Right. And it does, you don't actually have to like it that much, but you have to know it that well to be able to deconstruct it effectively. Well, and that's, that's kind of what uh, Jeffrey as the character and what the season does in a lot of ways is deconstruct Romeo and Juliet, yes. or at least the relationship in this. Yeah, no, I, I, would, I would say that each, it, it would not be unkind or off the, too far off the base to say each season is a deconstruction of the play that's within that season. Okay. Among other things. Among other things. Yeah. Um, and that's what, I mean, it's so brilliant is <laughs> as they're doing all these other things, they're also deconstructing Shakespeare. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and again, and, and it's that, that, that knowledge of Shakespeare that imbues it in such a way that even if you don't know Shakespeare, it, the themes are there and you can, you can tell that they know what they're doing. Yeah, very much so. 
Well, there's just a richness that's brought out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have the the very um, I don't know colloquial understanding of Shakespeare. It's just yes. permeates society. You know, everybody thinks... And it's usually <coughs> wrong. <laughs> right. Everybody thinks they know the stories. Uh-huh. But one of the things that Slings and Arrows does, it shows us, no, there's so much more mm-hmm. that's a part of these productions and that's a part of these these plays. And that's really why they've endured yeah, and, for hundreds and of years. It's really funny because I, I've, I've had a radical shift, in my opinion, of Shakespeare from... Three years ago, hmm. um, in part because of my my grad school experience, and in part because of Slings and Arrows. I mean, that's I'll be honest, that's affected me. Yeah, um, I took a, my one of my first grad school classes was on Shakespeare. And at the end of it, I absolutely hated Shakespeare, <laughs> um, and it wasn't until about a year later or so that I I was able to step back from it and get that distance and actually enjoy it a lot more. And, and right, I I hate to say it, but Hamlet is probably one of the best plays. <laughs> Ever, um, and and I say that inclusively, meaning that I there are other plays that can be as good as Hamlet, mm-hmm. and and certainly are. Um, so they, there can be more than one best play ever. Right. But it's it's really darn good. <laughs> um, and and knowing that and loving that, and you know, I get mad when people talk about this is okay rabbit hole time. Um, yeah, rabbit trail. Woo. I absolutely hate that our culture has decided to take Romeo and Juliet and hold it up as the world's greatest love story. Ah. <laughs> um, I really, really do, because I know Romeo and Juliet, and A, that's not what Romeo and Juliet was about, mm. like from a dramaturgical standpoint. I've, I've heard an incredible lecture that I'm not going to try and repeat for you here on what Romeo and Juliet's really about, and the answer is it's really about the Catholics, the Protestants, and England. Oh. Um, <laughs> Hmm. That's what it's about, and, and the war between those two tearing apart the country. Hmm. Not about true love at all. Wow. Um, <laughs> and and I would point to, and I'd, I'd show you the relationship between Romeo and Juliet and say, this isn't love, this is lust. Yes. It is a play about lust. And we don't really, if, we, if we're going to have a cultural archetype for in love like mad, you know, the, that, that, the truest love of all kind, mm-hmm. we shouldn't be holding up Romeo and Juliet. Right. What we should be doing is holding up Beatrice and Benedict for much ado about nothing. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's still a Shakespearean comedy. Or it's still it's a Shakespearean comedy, for one thing, first yeah. of all. Yeah, because they die at the end of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. That's not how you want a happy relationship to end. No. With suicide, <laughs> Suicide I not. is not... Yeah. That's not a healthy relationship. <laughs> um, but I think Beatrice and Benedict is, is a couple that hate each other at the beginning of the play. Yes. Um, it's not an uncommon trope, to, you know, the Ucrabacto TV tropes, you know, the, they hate each other, and though they're madly in love. Um, right, right. Princess Leia Han Solo yeah. as a more modern yep. example. Um, sort of that, that, and how that works. And Beatrice and Benedict are like that. Mm-hmm. They absolutely hate each other. Um, they, they constantly fight, argue, and, and they, of course, they do it in a Shakespeare witty way that's absolutely hilarious if you know what they're saying. Oh, well, and, and Jeffrey and Ellen, you know, throughout Slings and Arrows. Yes, I mean, much, much, much the same way. Yeah. Um, they, they are, in a lot of ways, Beatrice and Benedict. I, it didn't um, even click to me until, like, the, the final scene, really, where she's like, oh, by the way, the answer is yes. And I'm like, uh, there's been <laughs> ne- absolutely no discussion of marriage mm-hmm. in the entire show. And then up to that point, and then the, like the, the final the final scene is him going off to, to marry her. What do you mean? They were talking about marriage the entire time. 
Exactly. They just didn't say it. They just didn't say it. And I was like, when that hit me, I was like, ah, oh, God damn Your it. whole relationship was about that. Right. I mean, the, the show is just brilliant on so many levels. But anyways, back to your rabbit trail. Yeah. So, uh, so, so I mean, Beatrice and Benedict, they do not like each other. Mm-hmm. And they are tricked. And, like, the, the reason they come together is through a practical joke they, that some of their friends play on Benedict. Yes. Um, where they, they send him these fake love letters pretending to be Beatrice, I believe. If, pretending to be somebody else. I think it was Beatrice. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of switching around because it's Shakespearean comedy. So, yeah. you know, it's, I don't remember who all was what. And they actually, they do the bed trick where mm-hmm. they they take someone to bed and oh it's surprise not who you thought it was yeah. you just had sex with the wrong person <laughs> um, <laughs> or you know we just made you think you just had sex with the wrong person or we told somebody that you did and and mm. even more lies and confusion and gossip and that's Shakespearean comedy that's what I, do. I cannot wait for um, the Joss Whedon the I'm Joss really Whedon excited oh, um, God, I'm, yeah. I'm really excited about it because I haven't yeah. seen a good production of, I mean there are good productions out there of Much Ado mm-hmm. um, I think the uh, I'm sure the Kenneth Branagh one is great. I've mm-hmm. not seen it, so because Kenneth Branagh does Shakespeare before I he did, before he did we, Thor, he did we Shakespeare. Watched, we watched that one for your class um, for the class. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's great because mm-hmm. if you want good Shakespeare, Kenneth Branagh is a good way to go. It was, it was fantastic. <laughs> but I'd like I to see I Joss Whedon. I don't know why, but it was. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see Joss Whedon's take on it. <laughs> right. So again, so anytime someone says, you know, you see any reference to love like Romeo and Juliet, unless they're being intentionally wrong and trying to be ironic about it although that's not the term I like to use but, mm. although it's closer because they're using it well no because they're saying I like Romeo and Juliet because it is such a terrible love story right, um, right. so that would be a, ironic using it against its actual meaning um, probably Anyways. yeah, yeah. say so, no <laughs> Beatrice and Benedict it's better Beatrice and Benedict well and I, and I think um, I mean in a, in a lot of ways the I, I don't know if this, this this is just my you know layman's interpretation of, mm-hmm. of the what I think was the deconstruction in season two, which is that it's more about Romeo and Juliet can also be about um, a connection and reconciliation between seemingly irreconcilable things, right? So you the Montague and that's, and that's not wrong. Um, the Montague Capulet dichotomy, yes, the heterosexual homosexual dichotomy. Mm-hmm. You know the, the the fact that elements. That you can find commonality and connection, and sometimes deep and powerful connection mm-hmm. between opposites. Yeah, and I that's mean, not wrong. And 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 I would argue that I mean, just to a certain extent, that is what Shakespeare is saying. With with the Shakespeare is arguing that if, and this is again, this is the interpretation of uh, Howard. I really ought to know Howard's last name. I worked with him for two years. <laughs> Blanning. Blanning. We never called him Dr. Blanning or anything like that. He's always just Howard. Howard. Um, and if you met the guy, you'd say, oh, yeah, that's Howard. I mean, that's, if you, you can try and call him Dr. Anything, and it's not going to work. It doesn't work. stick. It's yeah. Howard. Um, so this is, this is the, the pet theory of Dr. Blanning that... See, I, I just did it. That was exciting. I said Dr. Blanning. Ooh, like he's official. Right, he's actually yeah. a really... He's an incredibly brilliant man. Um, <laughs> but that's his pet theory? No, his pet them? theory is is, and I say pet theory. I mean, he can back it up, and he's right. Mm-hmm. That's how much of a pet theory it is. Yeah. But um, he only he only discovered this recently, like seven or eight years ago, mm-hmm. um, that, that the Capulets and the Montagues represent not respectively necessarily the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, who were right. who were at war and and butting heads in England at this point of time. And his argument was that if the Capulets and the Protestants or the Catholics and the Montagues Continue fighting. <laughs> it will end in everybody 
dying, dying, oh, metaphorically speaking. Right, right. And so he said, we have to reconcile, or else mm-hmm. it's sort of this warning. Well, um, and, and I forget the the narrative, but after that, after they die together, right? Doesn't don't the families sort of come together over that? No, nope. no, okay, not really. Not any... um, I mean, there's, I mean, they die, and then there's sort of an epilogue, and the you know. Oh, there was never such a tale of more woe than this right. of her Juliet and her Romeo. Look how sad this thing yeah, is. Yeah, look how sad. Happened. I mean, that's what it is. I yeah. mean, that's... I mean, that's yeah. And it's it's relatively pure tragedy in the sense that there is no... There's no Hollywood ending after the fact. Right. Where, you know, you have that satisfactory... Okay, it was everything was sad, but there's that little satisfactory uptick at the end that makes you feel better. Nope. Nope, it's, it's a pretty sad, mm-hmm. terrible tragedy. So people would have gotten that in, in context then, or would have seen maybe. that, read it into it. Maybe, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Um, that's that's not an argument uh, that that I can make because I don't know the historical, mm. and and knowing what those people thought doesn't really matter. Right. Um, knowing what how the audience, I mean, it it can matter to be interesting to know, but it's not something that we can actually achieve. Okay. Um, not in the way that you're thinking of it, at least. I can't say that the people who watched Shakespeare would have gotten this and said, oh, we should stop fighting because he's talking about Catholics and Protestants and, and the world and England, our country. Yeah. Um, but that is one thing that... that but uh, that's a similar idea. But he, mm-hmm. he, takes it, he says specifically the, the opposites or the, the rivals in, this, in the context of the play mm-hmm. are Catholic, Catholicism and Protestantism. Yes. So um, who would, who would um, Romeo and Juliet represent then? It's it's not. I mean, they are well, Romeo and Juliet are the offspring. They are the future. Ah, okay. Um, and and if and okay, well, if you were to describe to me the ending of Romeo and Juliet, the stage picture that you see of that mm-hmm. that final moment of Romeo and Juliet, what do you see? Talk to me about it. Um, well, I'm I'm trying to remember. Like the last scene is is him uh, or who goes first? The uh, Rome, or Juliet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, Juliet's grave. Yeah. So Romeo lies beside her, takes the pill, whatever. You see the future dead on stage. Well, so so Romeo take, drinks the poison. Right. Juliet wakes up. She's all better. Oh, now. right, right. And then she. Oh God. Okay. Know, I don't know it well enough. But but then, well, then that's yeah. so that's the general idea. Is that, as the, yes. you see. And then she kills herself. Mm-hmm. To you know, put everybody on the same or to to meet him well, because she in, can't, yeah she can't be yeah. with her love right. So you you would say that you see these two bodies on stage and that's mm-hmm. sort of the end of the play. Yeah, there are three bodies on stage at the end of Romeo and Juliet. Really, just before that whole thing, mm-hmm. Romeo has killed Paris, oh. who was betrothed to Juliet and guarding her grave. Uh-huh. Hmm. Okay. That's some. That's. I mean. That's sort of telling us how our popular conception of Romeo and Juliet does not match what we see with Romeo and Juliet. Right. And so. And and at that point in the play, Romeo, Juliet, and Paris are the all the, all the children of the play, and they are all dead. Hmm. All of the children from Romeo and Juliet end the play dead. Hmm. Thus ends the future. Of the, their families, right? <laughs> okay, all right. Well, so that's, that's that is definitely <laughs> evidence in favor of, of this theory. Um, well, again, Howard has explained it to me, and mm-hmm. and I know he's right now. Yeah, <laughs> he explained it to me. And I said, "Oh, you're absolutely right, Howard. <laughs> I wish I could argue with it, but I don't need to because you're right." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and and I mean, were there any similar theories just about um, about? 
any of the Shakespearean plays, any new theories that came about as a result of slings and arrows to kind of bring it back? To me? Yeah. Um, any, any ways that, that, that the show portrayed some of the themes of the characters that you hadn't thought of before? Um, not particularly, although I will say that, that the show clearly had done its research in regards to all three plays. Yeah. Um, and all of the discussions they're having about you know, the motivation of the characters. There's, there's a great scene at the beginning of season two when they're wrapping up uh, Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And it's the last performance, and Jeffrey comes in and is talking to... His girlfriend, whatever. Ellen. Ellen, thank yeah. you. Um, talking to Ellen, and he's sort of he's saying, you know, that we've been doing this speech wrong the whole time, you know. Oh, her, yeah, her, yeah. And she's like, you can't just change the motivation from me like this in the last night. Yeah. And but and yet the, she does. But of course she and does. It's better. Uh, yeah. It is better. But that actual discussion, I mean, was was very much based in actual interpretation and thought about Shakespeare's play. Yes. And and the actual readings of how this character might react and how the queen would maybe see maybe what she had seen happening and what she was deciding of saying that it, was, it wasn't an accidental death. She was just mm-hmm. saying it was an accidental death. She actually knows it was suicide, but once her, not her daughter, but you know, once Ophelia to be buried mm-hmm. in consecrated ground, which you can't do if it's a suicide. Right. Um, and so sort of that, and that's, and that's a really neat reading of it. Um, when Jeffrey's talking about the to be or not to be speech, um, and he's talking about you have to make that decision of whether or not Hamlet knows he's being watched in this moment. Hmm. Because because in that moment, when, in the to be or not to be speech, you know, we always think of it as Hamlet alone on stage. And, yeah, but and there that, are two other characters be, behind the curtain. But there are two people behind watching, the curtain yeah. listening to what he's saying. And yeah. we, the audience, know that. Mm-hmm. And so there's a very important question. Does Hamlet know that? Yeah. Because Hamlet has decided at this point in the play that he's going to act crazy. Uh, I mean, I will, I will take on an antique disposition and act the fool. I'm, I'm misquoting Shakespeare, yeah. but, you know, I, I'm I act crazy. Play the fool? Play the fool, play maybe. The fool, right? Something. It's something yeah. like that. But I'm going to act crazy so people think I'm crazy so I can actually be investigating my father's death. Mm-hmm. And so, if Hamlet knows he's being watched, then it's entirely possible that he's acting crazy in this famous monologue of to be or not to be. Hmm. And, and thus changing its nature. It's still a soliloquy, but it's not necessarily... I mean, in, in that it's a monologue said by himself on stage. That's what a soliloquy is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's not actually said in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, or he doesn't know, and he really is contemplating suicide or the effects of death or whether or not it's worthwhile to go on. Mm. And again, it's a very different interpretation of the character. Yeah. Speaking of, when I was in Prague, I saw the absolute best production of Hamlet ever. <laughs> um, in check. In so check. I, in yeah. check. <laughs> but I know I know Hamlet well enough that I can tell what was going on. Yeah. Um, and this was a play that was not at all faithful necessarily in the same way. <laughs> in that, like for example, and and there's there were lots of examples. But again, mm-hmm. it was Hamlet, and I'm not going to argue that. But it was still it was the best interpretation of Hamlet I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. But in, he gives the to be or not to be speech to somebody. To Ophelia, of all people. She's sitting there at a table across from him. And hmm. he's basically saying, so, to be or not to be? It's an interesting question, don't you think? <laughs> you know? So Whether did, it, did you think it's better to, to, you know, to suffer the slings and arrows of, of the people who are torturing us? Or mm-hmm. do you think it's this? And so, again, that changes the dynamic a lot. Oh, but it's man. a really great scene to see them interpret it that way. Yeah. Um, again, not pure Shakespeare, but... 
I'm not necessarily a guy who says you have to be incredibly pure to the text because then you wouldn't have West Side Story. <laughs> um, West Side Story also gets the the Shakespeare thing right because you've got the Jets mm-hmm. and the Sharks fighting in America. Mm-hmm. What's that big song we've got from West Side Story? Da 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 America. Yeah, like it's it's a prevalent. Point in that there are some other issues with mm. West Side Story in of itself. So again, it's it's, it's about rival <laughs> it's about rival factions and and the destruction of their ta- of their place in the world. Mm-hmm. Arguably, there are other interpretations. Yeah, and how I, I mean, I I guess I would say that reconciliation is is key or, or is, is should be the goal. Should be the goal. Yeah, and factionism ultimately hurts everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one way to do it. Well. Gosh, I mean, we've—I <laughs> think we've—we've we've talked the show to death. It's, it's, he said, "Kevin, come talk about theater." <laughs> yeah, and and then yeah, <laughs> look what you get. An hour and a half later, um, no, not too bad. Well, we should wrap up with a form squeeze. Uh, sure. Oh, and first, wrap up by saying, I mean, we endorse uh, slings and arrows uh, just about as highly as it's possible to endorse. I've, I've, we've, we've barely scratched with... the surface of everything that they yeah, goes I mean, on. We could, I, mean, I could write a thesis on a season of slings and arrows yeah, yeah, no <laughs> without kidding. difficulty. Uh, but um, but certainly worth worth watching and worth contemplating, and mm-hmm. then watching and contemplating again, and then with different people and yeah. Um, so, anyways, let's uh, let's see what's in the form spring inbox, everybody. What we got sent to us recently? Oh, and because we always have to do this according to Kevin, uh, our first form squeeze question comes from Form Spring. Have you ever sent flowers to someone, Kevin? Uh, I've not sent flowers. I've given flowers, but I've not like had them delivered while I wasn't there. Right, like flower one eight hundred flowers or whatever. Yeah, well, I, I've used one eight hundred flowers actually. I had them oh. delivered to me so I could deliver them in ah, person. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I guess that, that, I mean that worked. Well, that counts. I yeah. didn't know when Amy was going to be home, so I had them delivered to me a couple of days ahead of time, so I could give her to them. On Were they Valentine's still good Day. a couple of days later? Yeah, I mean they last a few weeks. Okay. By that point, I'd actually had kept them in water, so they had just chance to bloom a little bit. Because mm. when you get them planted flowers, they're not fully bloomed. Oh. You have to give them a day or two to in water to to become as beautiful as they are meant to oh, be. Okay. Right. So, so so it actually helped that I did that I had them delivered to me first. Uh, I never have either way. So. <laughs> no, there you go. No. <laughs> um, yes, but only Kevin. <laughs> and not really. <laughs> and only kind of. <laughs> yeah, and only kind of. Um, all right, and the second one, um, let's see, answered in episode 105. 115. 115, sorry. No, we haven't regressed 10 episodes, I swear. Damn it. Um, well, this sort of ties into a contemporary topic. Um, well, more sort of. But what is the ideal relation between the individual and the state? There's been a lot of the, in the what news. State? And, what state? That's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Well, no, I mean, my, my answer is, you know, I don't think there should be a state. Um, it should just be individuals. Yeah. I've come back from that a little bit in my old age. Oh, are you not a, uh, a rational anarchist anymore? I'm pretty darn close. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just this side of rational anarchy. Okay. Yeah, let's, let's just leave it at that for now. Okay. Wait for some actual new ones to come in. Yes, ask us new questions ask so we can new answer questions, them. People. Okay, cool. Well, Kevin, thank you for, for being on the show once again. Glad uh, to be here. The Oscars are this next weekend. You'll probably hear this episode after we've already seen them and... Uh, should we talk I about? I, I'm, I've not seen any of the films. You haven't seen any. I've of seen them? maybe one of them. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm not going to be watching the actual ceremony. 
I play D and D on Sunday nights. Oh yeah. So. Do you even want to have a an, an Oscars episode? Yeah, I'm okay if we don't. Yeah, I'll try to get Brian on. Yeah. He's uh, he's at least more of a, a cinephile. So. We have a Tony's episode one of these years. Oh my God, you're gonna force me to watch all the. <sighs> okay, but I, but I can't watch the the productions that are up for awards. That's no, the thing. that's like, okay. We ah. can just talk about the show itself. Okay, if you want to see... I would argue that that's one of the reasons why the Tonys don't get watched as much. is because people don't know Actually, what the hell is being discussed. the Tonys do get watched a lot. A lot, but not as much no. as the Oscars. Well, okay, maybe. But the, the Tonys Grammys. put on a better show ah, than the Oscars. Okay. All right, yeah. Well, the they, Grammys are getting there. The Grammys have started putting on actual performances mm-hmm. and make it worthwhile to watch. Right, well, because the they, Oscars they, is they boring as... I'll get out. Whatever, whatever. They are. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but um, but they ha- the, the Tony's almost has to do that because nobody has, you know, a large portion of the audience, right, hasn't actually seen the productions because, you know, we're not lucky enough to live in New York City. Um, but they tell you what you should go see when touring companies come out. Yeah, of course. But... Let's see what the most recent Tony Award ratings were. Okay. Well, while Kevin looks that up, we'll go ahead and wrap things up on this episode. Um, we definitely thank you all for listening. Highly recommend uh, Slings and Arrows. Uh, you can follow us on, uh, on Twitter. Kevin is at uh, Kevson, K-E-V-S-A-U-N-D. I am S. Torrance, S-T-O-R-R-E-N-C-E. Uh, we're at Facebook.com slash Bad Philosophy, Twitter.com slash Bad Philosophy, Actually, I should just say, we're at Everything.com slash Bad Philosophy. We're not at BadPhilosophy.com slash Bad Philosophy. I could change that. I could, I could, I could <laughs> or cause just that, throw it in there. I could cause that to redirect yeah. to uh, to our site. <laughs> but anyways, just Google bad philosophy and you'll find us. Put it in um, the quotes; that'll help. We thank y'all for listening. We hope you have fun playing whatever part you play in this uh, this worldwide stage. And we'll see you next time on Bad Philosophy. Only understudy, I can't go on tonight. I'm drinking with my buddy, I'm getting good and tight. Before they raise the curtain, I'll be higher than a kite. So call me understudy, I can't go on tonight. Tell the cast and crew to break a leg, break a leg. Oh, some a neat little bit of trivia that yeah. I had no idea and I find incredibly hilarious. The, the dean from Community? Wrote The Descendants. Wrote The Descendants. I knew that. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> yeah, I knew that. <laughs> it's only right. My diction will be money. I'll ever find me light. Before the intermission, I'll be busy on a sprite. <laughs> so call the understudy. I can't go on. He can't go on. I won't go on. He shan't go on. I can't go on tonight, damn right. <laughs> <laughs> Bloop. <laughs>